as we begin this new message that we will, uh, series that we'll be in for quite a while. Well, this is the cruise ship, the Royal Princess. She's 1,082 feet long. She has accommodations for over 3,000 passengers and 1,300 crew members. She has three swimming pools, 17 decks, three different 600-seat dining rooms, a 1,000-seat theater, and a host of other amenities and activities, including restaurants, Broadway-caliber musicals, uh, nightclubs, gymnasiums, and it's a beautiful, beautiful ship. In fact, Sue and I sailed on this ship to Alaska about five years ago to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. We had a great time. We were spoiled by the crew. We saw some amazing sights. And then we came back home a week later. Now, this is a military vessel, the USS Midway, a United States naval ship. It's an aircraft carrier. It was decommissioned in 1992, and now it is a museum ship anchored in San Diego Harbor. It is also over 1,000 feet long. It has room for over 100 aircraft, and it will accommodate a crew of over 4,000 sailors. It's a small city on the water with a post office, a gymnasium, a barber shop, a medical clinic, and various mess halls and dining rooms. The, the Midway was the largest ship in the world until 1955, as well as the first U.S. aircraft carrier that was too big to transit the Panama Canal. She operated for 47 years, during which time she saw action in the Vietnam War and served in the Persian Gulf as the flagship during 1991's Operation Desert Storm. Sue and I were also on this ship a few years ago when we visited San Diego. We walked through the passageways, on the flight deck, and deep into the heart of this mighty warship, learning a lot about life on an aircraft carrier. Now, unlike a cruise ship designed for personal comfort and entertainment, an aircraft carrier's flight deck has been called one of the most dangerous places on earth to work, and rightly so. As many as 60 aircraft and 200 sailors are crammed onto little more than four acres of hardened steel armor plate at constant noise levels that can be felt in the sailors' teeth and ribs. Searing jet exhaust can cook or blow them overboard. At times, the air is so hot that they can't breathe. Jet intakes can pull someone off their feet and devour them if they're not paying attention. An unwary sailor can fall prey to a spinning propeller's razor-sharp invisible arc or the whipping of a severed arresting gear cable. On the flight deck, sailors move about in many different directions in what would appear to the uninitiated observer as complete chaos. And yet nothing is as organized as the flight deck of a U.S. Navy carrier. It's like an orchestra with each section devoted to performing a part of the overall symphony of carrier operations. Well, I share those two stories of two different ships because it occurs to me that churches can be a lot like these giant ships. Some people attend cruise ship churches. And much like cruise ship passengers, they come to be entertained or to be catered to, not 
much as expected of those church attendees. In fact, they tend to rate the quality of their experience, the music, the sermon, the programs, and the way that it makes them feel, much like cruise ship passengers rate their satisfaction on various aspects of their vacation. Cruise ship churches tend to be internally focused on the needs of their regularly attending members. The main goal at these churches, as on a cruise ship, is to keep the customer happy and complaints at a minimum. Leaders in a cruise ship church focus on the existing members rather than pursuing those far from God or encouraging others to do so. Very little of the church's calendar or training or communication is spent on activities to reach the lost or to help those in need outside of the church. There are, however, churches that are more like aircraft carriers. These churches are designed to empower all members to find their God-given purpose in life, to equip and to send them on missions into the world to reach and to serve those who don't know Jesus. Much like in the crew of an aircraft carrier is all about launching military planes and equipping them to, well, to carry out their various missions. An aircraft carrier is about the same size as many of those large cruise ships, housing thousands of people. But what distinguishes an aircraft carrier isn't its size, it's the efficiency on the flight deck. The crew of an aircraft carrier can launch a plane every 25 seconds, all in a fraction of the space of a typical landing strip. The mission pervades every aspect of that ship, from the captain to the person who restocks the ship's vending machines. Everyone on an aircraft carrier knows his or her particular role and how it supports the mission to equip, prepare, launch, and receive aircraft back from their crucial assignments. An aircraft carrier church has a clear mission that stems from the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. Everyone in the church knows why the church exists and they play a role in its crucial mission. And it is my prayer and my hope that Garden Way Church can be more and more like an aircraft carrier and less like a cruise ship. Instead of meandering slowly about May we live on mission. Instead of focusing on personal preferences and pleasure, may we be focused on our God-given purpose. And instead of just cruising through life, may we be committed to the great commandment and the great commission. Well, today we are beginning a brand new series called The Gospel of Mark, Servant and Savior. And this series is going to take us all the way through Mark's gospel as we focus on our Lord Jesus and the life of service and mission that he modeled for us, his followers. <clears throat> it's going to take us some time, but we're also going to take a few breaks along the way for special events and holidays. And so I want to begin today, and we're just going to look at the very first verse of Mark the Gospel of Mark, and then we're going to just continue, consider some of the unique elements of Mark's letter, Mark's Gospel. And so if you have your Bible, it's open to Mark 1.1. Here is the first verse, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. Well, it's interesting to me that Mark starts with the launch of Jesus' formal ministry. Unlike Matthew and Luke, who begin with the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, Mark starts with Jesus getting involved on mission. The word beginning can refer to the, the cause or head of something. Jesus is before all things, as we're reminded in John chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, in the beginning was the word. But beginning can also refer to the start of something, like a road. At a, a deeper level, Mark is telling us that he is about to begin something brand new. We might think of it much like Genesis 1.1, where it says, in the beginning. Let's get started. And then the gospel, the word gospel. That literally means the good news that God has provided salvation for everyone through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the use of that word gospel would have surprised Mark's readers in the first century in at least two ways. First, for those who had a Jewish background and an understanding of the Old Testament. They would have been intrigued by Mark's use of the word gospel because perhaps they would have thought back to that famous prophecy in Isaiah 52.7 where we read of the coming of God to a people who have been in exile. Isaiah writes, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings, what? Good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so that would have piqued the interest of the Jewish reader of Mark's gospel. But then many of the people in Mark's world were from a Roman background. And the word gospel would have drawn them in as well because they would associate gospel with some significant event that would change world history, like the birth of an heir to the emperor. There's one famous historical inscription that reads like this. The birthday of Caesar Augustus was the beginning the gospel for the world, the beginning of the world for the gospel, the good news that comes to men through him. Now that's a secular source about a pagan emperor, but the word gospel is applied to talk about his birth. Isn't that interesting how that word could draw in both people from a Roman background and a Jewish background? Now, we commonly say that there are four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But really, there is really just one Gospel, one amount of good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so it might be better to say that we have four accounts of the good news or of the Gospel. And each of them have a kind of a different angle and a different purpose. And so in that sense, it's not really Mark's gospel. It's the good news of great joy about Jesus Christ. I found one paraphrase that puts it like this. The, in verse 1-1, one, one, he writes, The beginning of the preaching of the joyful tidings. I really like that. 
The beginning of the preaching of the joyful tidings. So let's consider now Mark's focus on Jesus. If you have your outlines, we're going to have three uh, points under Jesus and three points under Mark that you might want to follow along and write down if you're into that kind of thing. So Mark wastes very little time by getting to the identity of his subject. Who's he writing about? Right there in verse 1. He uses three names and titles concerning his subject. First, he talks about his person, the person, Jesus. Jesus is his given name, which in Hebrew is Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. The angel of the Lord told Joseph in Matthew 1.21, when he came to visit Joseph, he said, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And so his name is descriptive of his mission. Jesus is all about saving people. That is the reason that he is called Jesus. And so that's his person. But then next we can see his position. His position. The word Christ is the Greek title for Messiah. And that is the Hebrew word, which means anointed one. The question of Jesus' identity is the hinge point of the gospel of Mark. And so if you've got your Bibles, you might turn to Mark 8, 29. It's kind of right in the middle of the book of Mark. Mark has 16 chapters, and this is in chapter 8. And there's a particular point in time in which Jesus is having a, a discussion with his disciples. And in Mark 8, 29, it says, and he asked them, that is, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Everything written in the gospel of Mark up to this point focuses on Jesus as a servant. And everything from this point forward follows and sets the scene for his work as a savior. And so those are the two themes that we're going to be following all the way through this book, servant and savior. It's really the hinge of the book, and it's the hinge of our lives. Peter confessed Jesus as Christ, the anointed one, the one sent from God. And by the way, have you done that? Is Jesus your Christ? Have you recognized his position as your Savior? And then finally, we want to look at his power. His power. The Son of God. The Son of God. This bold title conveys full divine status. Jesus was no mere man. He is the Son of God. Take a look at verse 11 in chapter 1. This is at Jesus' baptism, and it says, A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And then if we skip a few chapters up to Mark 3.11, it tells us that when some demons came and saw Jesus, they knew who he was. They came and fell down at his feet, it says. And they cried out, you are the son of God. And then if we flip all the way to the back of chapter 15, 
in the Gospel of Mark. There's a, a, a confession by the centurion, the Roman soldier, in charge of the crucifixion of Jesus. And if Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ is the hinge point, then we might say that this military man's declaration is the high point. He said, the text says, and when the centurion who stood facing him, that is Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. That confession comes from a hardened warrior, a soldier who's put his life on the line for the pagan Roman Empire. And as he watches Jesus die, he comes to understand Jesus was much more than just another criminal to be crucified that day. He was the Son of God. And so in one brief opening verse, Mark introduces us to Jesus through his person, through his position, and through his power. Now, I want to spend a few minutes just exploring the life of this man that we call Mark, who wrote this gospel that we are going to be examining over the next several months. And the first thing that I want you to notice is the person of Mark, his person. Now, his official name was John Mark. John is a Hebrew name, a Hebrew name, a Jewish name, which means grace of God. And Marcus was his Roman name, which means the hammer. So if you put those together, we could call him the Holy Hammer. That would be a great nickname to have, wouldn't it be? The Holy Hammer. Now, we know that Mark's mother's name was Mary and that she owned a rather large home in Jerusalem. We don't know anything about his father. We speculate that perhaps his father was Roman. Perhaps Mark's mother was a single parent. We just don't know. We do know that the apostle Peter was like a father figure to Mark. He led him to faith in Christ, and he mentored him as a young man. In 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse 13, Peter calls Mark his son. Although Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples, he learned about the Lord through Peter. And so here there are two kind of what we would call highlights, or maybe we should call them lowlights from Mark's life that I think are worth mentioning as we begin uh, studying his gospel. And the first is that Mark fled from Jesus. On the very night before Jesus was crucified, in Mark 14, verses 51 and 52, Mark, writing his gospel, gives us kind of an autobiographical comment, a comment about himself. He doesn't name himself, but he says, and a young man followed him, that is Jesus, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And as they seized him, he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. How would you like that to be your heritage as a Christian leader? Everybody remembers you as the kid that ran away through the bushes naked. So while Peter, we know, later ends up denying Jesus, we know that Mark ditched him. And then the second thing we know about Mark is that he kind of folded on the Apostle Paul. Many years later, the Apostle Paul and his co-worker Barnabas took Mark on a short-term mission trip. 
In Acts chapter 13, he's referred to as their assistant or their helper. And when things got messy, Mark quit. He ended up going back home. And this caused some conflict on the flight deck there between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas gave Mark a second chance. But Paul was not willing to. And so they went their separate ways. But later on, many years later, Paul, Paul kind of gave in. He relented. And he, I think, perhaps remembered that God loves to redeem and restore those who have folded on him. And so I want you to hear this little amazing statement from Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. As he's writing to Timothy, Timothy's kind of his right-hand man, and he's giving some final instructions in chapter 4 and verse 11. He says to Timothy, get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Isn't that amazing? Mark fled. He folded. But because of God's faithfulness, he got back up and he followed Christ. I find it very interesting that, that Mark bailed. That Peter, he failed. And yet both of them got back on mission. Aren't you glad that our past failures don't disqualify us from following Jesus? I hope that you find that encouraging. Well, we've looked at the person of Mark. Now, let's consider the purpose of Mark's account, his purpose. Do, do you ever feel angry when you consider what's happening in our culture and our world today? Do you ever feel afraid when, when you see Christianity becoming increasingly marginalized in our secular 21st century culture? You know, something very similar, but really far worse, was happening in the first century to Christ followers. After Rome suffered a huge fire that was likely set deliberately by the despicable Emperor Nero, Christians took the blame for that fire. Heavy persecution was unleashed on Christ followers and things became very precarious for believers. And it was into that very world that Mark wrote this gospel that we're studying. He encouraged a minority group of people to live on mission just like our Lord did, no matter how difficult it becomes. They needed to be reminded that even if the world seemed like it was falling apart, God would work through their witness. And likewise, likewise, brothers and sisters, we are called to live holy lives in increasingly a hostile environment. And when we suffer, we must remember that our Savior suffered long before we did. And when we get angry and afraid at things that are happening, we must be disciplined to put those unfruitful emotions aside and instead keep serving those around us as Jesus kept serving until the very end. Fellowship mates, as our culture and our world continues to decay and to degrade, following Christ will become increasingly costly, but totally worth it if we can stay 
on task. Did you know that you could sit down and read the Gospel of Mark in about 90 minutes? That's about how long it takes to read from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 16. 90 minutes. I want to issue a challenge today. I want to challenge you over the next two weeks to carve out a period of 90 minutes where you sit down and read through the Gospel of Mark. And as you do, I want you to have your pen or your pencil handy, and I want you to be on the lookout for clear statements and declarations that Jesus makes. Underline those clear statements and declarations, because if we can understand those and hold on to those, they will help each of us to get recalibrated so that we can live on mission as we're called to. Now, Mark is not only the shortest and the earliest gospel, it also has some very unique features that we're going to uncover together as we work through the book. Mark's gospel is an ideal introduction to the Christian faith. In fact, when Wycliffe Bible translators, when they are coming into a new area to translate the scriptures into a new language, they often will start with the gospel of Mark because of its brevity and its very clear message. And so if you know somebody that is a newer believer, if you're a newer believer yourself, Mark is a great book to start with in the scriptures. Well, finally, I want to look now at some of the peculiar things about this gospel. And so this last section is called Mark His Peculiarity. I had to choose that word because I needed one more P for my outline. And I don't like it because it's hard to say. Peculiarity. And I'll probably mess it up later on. Because uh, as I was going through this a couple of times, I did that already. But here are some, I'm just going to give you some rapid fire facts about Mark's gospel that are unique. All of this is a background as we enter in to studying the gospel. Number one, Mark focuses more on the works of Jesus and less on his words. Mark records 19 miracles that Jesus performed, but only four parables. But interestingly, each of those parables has serving as its theme. Jesus, our servant and savior. Number two, the language Mark uses is full of emotion and often abrupt. We read in chapter 8 and verse 12 that Jesus sighed deeply and that he was moved with compassion in 634. He marveled at their unbelief in 6.6, and in 3.5, he looked around in anger. At the same time, when he saw the rich young ruler in chapter 10 in verse 21, we read, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. We also see that people had strong reactions to Jesus. I counted 15 individuals in the Gospel of Mark who decided to follow Jesus after coming face to face with him. People were never passive about Jesus or bored with him. There's no way to just ignore him. He either made people angry or astonished or amazed or left them standing in awe. People fought against him or they put their faith in him. And you know what? The same is true today. You will reject him or you will receive him. There's no middle ground with Jesus. I want you to check out these various reactions that people had to Jesus. And I, wanna, I want you to just consider, can you remain neutral about Jesus? Look at some of these. 
they were all amazed so that they questioned amongst themselves. And they were filled with great fear. And the man ran and fell down before Jesus. And they were overcome with amazement. And many who heard him were astonished. And they took offense at him. For they all saw him and were terrified. And they were utterly astounded. The people ran about the whole region. And they were astonished beyond measure. And they were amazed and afraid. The leaders feared him because all the crowd was astonished. And finally, they marveled at the Lord. And so here are some questions for you. What's your response to Jesus? Have you made the decision to follow him? What's your reaction to what he has done for you? Here's another peculiar point about the Gospel of Mark. Number three, Jesus acts quickly to meet needs. He acts quickly. We see in Mark's uh, use of the word immediately or straightway. He uses that word 42 times in his short gospel to convey a sense of vividness, of excitement, of movement. The gospel of Luke, which is much longer than Mark, only uses the word immediately seven times. One commentator called Mark's gospel a moving picture of the ministry of Jesus. Don't you just love that Jesus is all about forward motion? That's who our Lord is. All about forward motion. I I recently talked to a friend who spent numerous years in the U.S. Navy. And he helped me to understand that aircraft carriers are all about forward deployment and presence. He described their purpose to defend and to go forward and also to be ready to help during catastrophes. We often see that in the news, don't we? When there's a a great catastrophe somewhere around the world, the United States will often send a carrier group to meet the needs. And so we see clearly in Mark that Jesus was all about forward deployment, about the mission ahead, about meeting the needs. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, how about you? Are you on mission to respond immediately to needs? Or is there some mission drift going on in your life? Well, here's another peculiar point about Mark's gospel. Number four, Mark uses the historical present tense over 150 times. So in the original language that Mark uses, instead of writing, Jesus came, Mark will write, Jesus comes. Mark is all about Jesus says, not about Jesus said. He likes to say Jesus heals instead of Jesus healed. You see, Jesus did all those things in the past, but as Mark writes his gospel, he wants us to understand Jesus is still doing those things in the present He saved then, and he saves now. He served then, and he serves now. 
Author Tim Keller puts it this way. Jesus is not merely a historical figure, but a living reality who addresses us today. That's the Lord that we serve. Another peculiar point about Mark number five, Mark holds up the cost of discipleship, even though the disciples often fall short. In chapter eight and verse 34, Jesus says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a high calling. And Jesus continually calls calls his followers to complete commitment. But when they fail, when they fail, not if they fail, when they fail, our Lord comes alongside and he urges us to get back on mission. You know, sometimes the disciples question Jesus and even complain at times, like in chapter 4 and verse 38, when they cry out to Jesus, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? We're dying here, Lord. You know, we've met the disciples, and they're us, aren't they? You ever complain a little bit about the Lord? Lord, I'm dying over here. Come on. Yes. And Jesus is calling us, though, to take up our cross to follow him. What did it mean to take up a cross? It meant that you were a condemned criminal marching to your death. That's what Jesus did for us. Author Randy Alcorn writes, following Christ means taking up your cross daily, which means little sacrifices made repeatedly. I love that definition. Small or little sacrifices made repeatedly. And so we are continually taking up our cross and following Jesus. But aren't you glad that Jesus gives us grace and mercy when we fall down, when we fall short? If God can use a denier like Peter and a deserter like Mark, then he can use flawed disciples like you and like me. Well, finally, one more peculiar point about Mark's gospel. Mark's emphasis is on the last week of Jesus' life. The events surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ make up 40% of Mark's manuscript. One writer described Mark's gospel as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. I like that. You see, Jesus was born to die. He was born to die. His death was not some tragic accident, but it was a part of God's perfect plan from the very beginning. Jesus, our selfless servant, and now our suffering Savior. And so let's go back to the metaphor of the church as an aircraft carrier. I asked a a couple other acquaintances who are veterans of Navy life to just explain or describe their experiences in a few words. And here's a few things I jotted down. Here's some of the things they said. They both mentioned the importance of teamwork and that everyone must do their job. One said, if a shipmate doesn't open the right valve, someone could die. If orders aren't followed, planes could crash. Everyone has a job to do and must do it faithfully if the mission is to be accomplished. No one is just along for the ride or to see the sights. I like that. 
And then finally, the key is for every member of the crew to always be ready and to maintain high up tempo. I thought that was an interesting phrase. And so folks, as we spend time in Mark's gospel over the coming weeks, I believe that it will equip us to live on mission. And so I want to issue this challenge to our crew right here at Gardenway Church, the aircraft carrier, Gardenway Church, cruising through Lane County. What is our mission? Here's the challenge. Let's break out of the patterns of self-absorption and self-centered living that are so common in our culture. And let's serve like never before so that people will be drawn to the Savior. Let's remember, we're not on a pleasure cruise where our every want and desire will be met. But rather, we are on a mission together as we fly the banner of Jesus Christ, as we spread his good news all around. Let's pray together. Father God, we are thankful for your word that is living and active. We thank you for Mark who took the time to carefully craft these words, to put them together in such a way that it is understandable and it is bringing enthusiasm about our life for you, following you. And so, Father, we pray that as, as we spend time together working our way through this good news, this gospel of Mark, Father, we pray that you would use your word in powerful ways to motivate us, to encourage us, to convict us. And Father to lead us where we must go on mission. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to prepare to share together in the communion in just a few moments. The night before Jesus died, he gathered his shipmates for a meal and for some final mission instructions, if you will. And it's likely that that Last Supper was held in the home of Mark's mom. Jesus dined with his disciples in that upper room before he deployed them. I find it so interesting that he chose community right before he died. And so once again, he demonstrates to us that he is a servant by serving his team during their last meal together. And then he died as their savior, urging them to live on mission by completing his mission. The word commission comes from the world of shipbuilding. A commissioned ship is one that is deemed ready for service. When a ship is ready to sail, it is placed into active service and it is sent on mission. Jesus desires for us to commune with him right now so that we can be calibrated and commissioned to live on mission for him. And it's not about our comfort, but all about our commitment to Christ. So I want to encourage you this morning, let's use this time to get off the cruise ship, to jump aboard the carrier under the command of our captain, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Listen to Mark's account of the meal in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. And as they were eating, 
Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take this, it is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So just in a moment, as the music plays, we invite you to make your way to one of the four tables, two at the back, two at the front, where you can receive the bread, the body of Christ, the cup, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for me. May God bless you as we share together in this simple supper, remembering reflecting, and recommitting.